ovation here. Let's go to our ring announcer. Welcome to the show that brings you all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. It is now time to go beyond the bell. You have never seen before. It began with one man. Two decades later, it has grown to include the biggest names in sports entertainment. Icons, legends, larger-than-life personalities who define their time and redefine the future of WWE. Tonight, we celebrate the class of 2012. Their right to stand with legends and to inspire all that will follow. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the show that takes you back in time as we rewind and relive all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. This is Beyond the Bell via the SNS Radio Network. I'm Sean Beckerman, and I'm proud to present to you the 2012 class of the WWE Hall of Fame. Archived at ringannouncing.com. Tonight, we look at the careers of the four horsemen. Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Barry Windham, J.J. Dillon, and none other than the nature boy, Ric Flair. We look back at the careers of Ron Simmons and Yokozuna. The baddest man on the planet, Iron Mike Tyson. No mascaras. And we look at the career of the Rated R Superstar Edge. Tonight, we celebrate their careers 
in the world of professional wrestling here on Beyond the Bell via the SNS Radio Network. Let's kick things off with the career of none other than Ron Simmons. has always let his actions do the talking. From his humble beginnings at Florida State University in the late 70s, the prize recruit quickly put the fledgling football program on the map, terrorizing opposing offenses en route to two Orange Bowls and All-American honors. The All-American's uncanny athleticism and punishing strength made him a natural in the squared circle. Point is Ron Simmons is personified. On August 2nd, 1992, Ron Simmons laid claim to WCW's ultimate prize. As the first African-American world heavyweight champion, Simmons' monumental achievement paved the way for an entire generation of black American superstars. During WWE's Attitude Era, Simmons would partner with JBL, forming the APA. The bar-brawling mercenaries took on any dirty deed. If... The price was right. Money. Oh, oh, oh. And beer. Oh, 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 oh. Now, see, now, I'll never see that. I think the kids are going to keep talking. In the bizarre and unpredictable world of WWE, the WWE universe has always taken comfort in Simmons' grounded observations. It is with great honor. And enthusiasm that we welcome Ron Simmons into the WWE Hall of Fame. Warner Robins High School, where he played football as a tight end and linebacker, Ron Simmons grew his sports career. In 1976, he was named Lineman of the Year and First Team All-State by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. That started off his extensive and tremendous football career. Simmons was an All-American football player at Florida State University from 1977 to 1980 under coach Bobby Bowden, whom Simmons described as a second father. He spent four years as a defensive nose guard. I can definitely relate. Go nose guards. The Seminoles were 39-8 and during Simmons' years at, at the school, finishing in the Associated Press top 23 times in 77, 79, and 80. He earned back-to-back Orange Bowl trips during his junior and senior years. Ron Simmons' jersey was retired by FSU, the good old number 50. He later had a brief career in the National Football League, selected 
160 overall in the 1981 NFL Draft. He played for the Cleveland Browns in 81 and the USFL's Tampa Bay Bandits in 84 and 85. And it was in Tampa where he was he met and was introduced and a teammate of future professional wrestler Lex Luger. That brought us on from a transition from football to wrestling. Ron Simmons started his career in the National Wrestling Alliance, World Championship Wrestling, and it ran from 89 to 94. Simmons teamed up with Butch Reed to form Doom in the NWA. In the beginning, the members of Doom were masked and only known as Doom Number 1 and Doom, no- Doom Number 2, managed by woman. With new manager Teddy Long eventually arriving, they rebounded and defeated the Steiner Brothers for the NWA World Tag Team Championship at Capital Combat 90. The Rock and Roll Express, the Four Horsemen, and others feuded with Doom in a red-hot NWA Tag Team division. Eventually, Doom broke up, with Simmons turning face and feuding with Butch Reed. This led to him defeating Butch Reed in a cage match at the very first Super Bowl. On August 2nd of 1992, a scheduled title match between Sting and WCW World Heavyweight Champion Big Van Vader was canceled after Jake Roberts injured Sting in the storyline. WCW President Bill Watts responded by holding a raffle to determine the number one contender. Simmons won this raffle and defeated Vader with a power slam to win the WCW Championship. By defeating Vader, Ron Simmons became the very first recognized African-American WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Vader sends him in the Irish whip. Oh, nobody there. Simmons moves. He's got it cradled. But Vader too strong. He powered out. Simmons goes to the ropes. They get some leverage. And Vader dropped it all. All 448 right on the chest of Ron Simmons as all the air rushes out of the challenger's body. The champion back up. Back in control is Big Van Vader. In this hard-hitting battle for the heavyweight championship of the world. Vader now in control. Going for a waist lock. And Vader's got him up. Simmons held the title for five months. He feuded with Cactus Jack, the Barbarian, and others. At Starcade 92, Simmons was scheduled to wrestle Rick Rude, but due to Rude being injured, he faced Dr. Dusty Williams. This led to a double count-up between the two. In December of 30th in 1992, when Vader took on Ron Simmons, it finally ended his illustrious title reign. Simmons unsuccessfully challenged Dustin Rhodes for the U.S. Championship following his loss, and Paul Arndorf for the TV title, 
during the last months of his tenure at World Championship Wrestling. That led to him with a brief stint in Extreme Championship Wrestling, where Simmons appeared in ECW from 94 to 95, late 94 to early 95. During that time, he unsuccessfully challenged ECW World Champion Jim Douglas at November to Remember 94 and had matches with Mikey Whipwreck and 911. Standing by in our studios right now with comments regarding the tag team matchup, the main event this Saturday night. One half of that gigantic tag team matchup. We go now to Ron Simmons and Two Cold Scorpio. You know, Ron, <laughs> Two Cold and Ron Simmons in the mother, in the house. You know what I'm saying? This Saturday night, November the 19th, we're taking you straight to the extreme. Shane Douglas, stunning Steve Austin. <laughs> and Sherry Martell. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> I got something for your ass. Over and over again and back and forth again. <laughs> but I tell you what, don't get the wrong idea. Because if you stick your nose where it don't belong, <laughs> I will slap you right dead in the face. <laughs> I ain't never hit a woman, <laughs> but do you call yourself one? You ain't never, but bro, I have, and slapped a many of them, and we'll continue to slap a many of them. Ooh. And Sherry Martell will be the first one that I will hit if she gets in the way. That shows you something about them punks, doesn't it? Somebody that was stripping a sorority house, bring somebody like Sherry Martell with them in their corner. Oh, that is somebody to cover your back. Uh-huh, brother, can sure. you believe that? <laughs> Listen to me. We're not going to take you in the ring. We're going to take you to the streets. The hood, the hardcore stuff. We're, we're just scared to drive to, you know what I'm saying? Drive-by stuff that you get so frightened of. Raised up, eating off the sea of a planet. We scared to go in those neighborhoods. But guess what? When you get in that ring, I'm going to give you just what the taste of that is like. What hardcore living is like. What it's like to be raised up as a fighter. You understand that? Now you bring this woman. Bring him making him look elegant. Half her to do some all that stupid, treacherous, feeling them stuff that she does. And see if Ron Simmer don't slap her right into the next century. Okay? The same thing that I'm going to do this Saturday to you and Steve Austin. I am going to... Uh, Steve, did I get that right? Is it Steve Austin? Or who is it? Steve who? I think it's Austin. Well, whoever it is. Yeah. Steve Martin. Funny man. I don't care. Bring him all. It don't make no difference to me. Hey, listen to me. Hey, wait, wait, wait. You think Steve Austin can handle this? This is to the extreme. Well, this ain't the WCW. Extreme? Yeah, this is to the extreme. You know what extreme. I'm saying? Take him to the hood. Man, they ain't got no idea what extreme is. I am extreme. I am extreme. Ask anybody. I've taken punks like you and literally eaten them for breakfast. You hear me? Ask anybody. Look in the record books and see if Ron Simmons ain't right now. All-American, retired Jersey. You know why? Because I've taken little pale punks like you and took them in my hands and literally put them in my mouth. And that's exactly what I'm going to do this Saturday. Now, when you get in that ring, you better have your behind ready to fight. Now, tell me this. Though I have the man or do I have the man to watch my back? You know what I'm saying? Because all this bull going on down here in ECW. Oh, about people find a cake want to try to help the Mr. Franchise out, oh, Mr. Shane over. Douglas. <laughs> It'll never be this Saturday night, Save your butt now. Just is like on the line. For the WCW, when I became the f put that belt on. Oh, they said it would never happen. Never. Made a lot of people mad to see me walk out there with that belt on. But guess what I did? 
made him even madder because I went out there and continued to kick ass. And that's what I'm going to do this Saturday. Well, Rod, you know, straight from the heart, man, if you couldn't kick no ass, I would ask you to watch my back. Well, listen, you know what man, I'm I saying? I came into the world doing it, and they know it. I ain't got nothing. That's it. Well, then let's do that. It's all over. Hey, this Saturday night, November the 19th, when it's all said and done, whoop, there it is. And we gone. Simmons joined the World Wrestling Federation and made his debut on July 22nd of 1986. On an episode of Raw, his first gimmick was that of Farouk Assad, a gladiator who wore a black and blue gladiator outfit with a misshaped helmet and was managed by Sonny. Simmons started his first feud with Ahmed Johnson before shortening his ring name to Farouk. When I, when I first saw him come into the World Wrestling Federation, I was so excited. Ron Simmons. Wait, I said, wait, he looks familiar. Yeah, Ron Simmons. There he is. It just, the helmet, the tights didn't really fit. The acolyte or the future acolyte didn't really fit Ron Simmons to the core of the type of person he was. That led us to the Nation of Domination in 1996. As Farouk, Simmons dropped his gladiator gimmick and with his new manager, Clarence Mason, formed a stable known as the Nation of Domination. The Nation was loosely based on the Nation of Islam and the Black Panther Party, although the members were non-African American. He had Crush, Savio Vega, and of course D'Lo Brown as his cohorts. They raised hell in the World Wrestling Federation, and the group stayed together despite some animosity until Farouk became angry with them for costing him the world championship. After Simmons threw Crush and Savio Vega out of the nation, Crush and Vega formed their own rival factions, known respectively as the Disciples of Apocalypse and Los Bariquas. Following this, Farouk recruited more African-American members for the nation. This is where he brought on Kama Mustafa, Mark Henry, the world's strongest man, and D'Lo Brown. Wait, not to mention The Rock, Rocky Maivia. In early 1998, Simmons' leadership of the nation was challenged by The Rock, which ultimately led to the nation turning on Farouk, with The Rock becoming the new leader of the nation. With uh, all due respect, Farouk, it seems as if your nation is coming apart at the seams. Let me, t- let me put it like this. When I formed this nation, I got I recruited people that at all costs was to rock the roots back, no matter what happened. If I was dying and they were going to go with me, that's the way it's supposed to go. Let's take Savio Vega, for instance. Here's somebody I took out of the field, literally picking jalapeno peppers. When he joined the nation, what happened? He came all the way to the top. No, but guess what he did? Stabbed me in my back. Well, Savio Vega... Guess what? You remember this. As hot as a jalapeno pepper is, your ass is fired as of today. Here's another one. Crush. That wasn't making any waves here in the WWF. Just idle. Just moseying alone. But when he joined the nation, what happened? I took it to championship staff. What did he do? Stabbed me in my back. Well, Crush... You can join your place, take your place in the unemployment line. Fire. You're fired. You can't fire me, fool. And when I look around here, as a matter of fact, ain't none of y'all took no bumps, ain't did a damn thing. Get the hell out of here. Well, all of you fired. 
has just fired. There's only one other person that has to go from this day on that can consider themselves fired. Zero, hold the roof open for class. What? What? Just a step in. What? What are you? You're fired, Clarence. Just a step in. What are you going to fire me for? You can't do this to me. Get lost. And I want you people to understand something. From this day forward, you're going to see a new nation formed under Farouk. One that's more powerful for that. One more that's more loyal than those vice there. And I want you to get this. I want the two most, the people I hate the most here in the WWF, The Undertaker, and Ahmed Johnson. I want you to be the first two victims of the new nation. I challenge you to right here next Monday on Raw. He spent several months feuding with his former stablemates as a result. This leads us to the Acolytes, the APA, starting off in 1998. After being dumped by the nation, Simmons teamed briefly with Two Cold Scorpio. In late 1998, Simmons began teaming with Bradshaw as Hell's henchman. They were managed by the Jackal until he left the WWF, at which point they were repackaged as members of the Undertaker's Ministry of Darkness and were renamed the Acolytes. After the Undertaker suffered an injury in late 1999, the Ministry of Darkness disbanded. Simmons and Bradshaw continued to team with one another and eventually adopted the gimmick of two brawlers who enjoyed drinking beer and smoking cigars, becoming faces in the process. After Bradshaw began hiring out their services as mercenaries and bodyguards, the team was renamed the Acolyte Protection Agency. Around this time, Simmons would start saying his trademark, damn, catchphrase, though it wouldn't be emphasized as much as it would later on. The APA teamed together until 2002 when Simmons was drafted to SmackDown, a part of the brand split in the World Wrestling Federation, now known as WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment. Around this time, Simmons changed his ring name to his real name by choice. Simmons had a brief heel run when he teamed with Reverend Devon until he retired in December 2002. But in June of 2003, he returned to the WWE to join Bradshaw, to reunite the APA. In his last WWE storyline, he was fired by former SmackDown general manager Paul Heyman after he disrespected Heyman due to the WrestleMania 20 issue between Heyman and Stone Cold Steve Austin during that night. It was assumed the APA would be fired, of course, but it turned out to only be Farouk. Simmons retired from his in-ring career in storyline, accusing Bradshaw of not being a faithful friend. This led to the creation of JBL. He had decided to retire quietly in this manner due to injury and, of course, age. During that event, Heyman told Bradshaw that it was time for him to break out on his own. Of course, we all know that led to John Bradshaw Layfield. Since then, he made occasional appearances and settled into his retirement. We saw Ron Simmons engage with feuds with Santino Morella and also participate in many vignettes featuring his catchphrase, Damn. No one can deny that Ron Simmons is one of the superstars that made tremendous strides 
in the world of professional wrestling, becoming the first African-American world heavyweight champion, becoming an entertainer, a brawler, all stemming from his illustrious football career. Ron Simmons is definitely deserving of being placed into the Hall of Fame. One last time. Damn! In 1992, the shores of the WWE were invaded by a new threat from the land of the rising sun. Take a look at this! Wow! Take a look at the girth! Take a look at 505 pounds of Yokozuna! Within weeks of Yokozuna breaking into the business, anybody will tell you he's going to be a star. He was just so massive. And then just to watch him do these maneuvers that most big men did not do. Utilizing his gargantuan size and incredible athleticism, Yokozuna squashed his way to the top of the WWE ranks. At WrestleMania 9, Yokozuna shocked the world. What a moment it is now! The championship on the line! Champion. When I saw the guy at WrestleMania and I saw how the big guy could move around like that, he became one of my favorites. History will recount Yokozuna's monstrous reign in the ring, but it was his magnetic and gentle personality that will live on in the hearts of everyone who was privileged to know him. I wish Yokozuna was still around because I think that he was one of the best big men to ever get in the ring. And as big as he was and as fierce as he could be on TV, one of the absolute nicest guys. Yoko will always be a legend. There will never be no other Yokozuna. We are proud to welcome Yokozuna to the WWE Hall of Fame Class of 2012. The mighty Yokozuna. He may not have had a long run in the WWF, nor will he ever be considered one of the best physical specimens ever to come through the door of professional wrestling. But for one thing you cannot ignore is that Rodney Anoa, for a short period, reached the top of the wrestling world. For a time, he was the best in the business. Anoa's career in professional wrestling began as he grew up in a family full of wrestlers. His uncles were the Wild Samoans, Afa and Sika, who trained him at an early age in the family business. Anoa then took on the name of the Great Kokina while wrestling overseas in Japan. He also spent some time in Mexico learning the craft and gaining the experience necessary to be a star in the sport. His first major exposure in the United States came out of the AWA, known as Coquina Maximus, 
wrestling as a Samoan superstar. At the time, he weighed less than 400 pounds, making him a lean wrestling machine. Unfortunately, Coquina Maximus never was a great success in the AWA, and when it closed, he once again left America to wrestle overseas. In 1992, Anoa was contacted by Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation and offered a chance to create a new character, Yokozuna. With Mr. Fuji as his manager and Jim Cornette as his advisor, Yokozuna was announced as a sumo wrestler from Japan. He wore extra padding in his trunks at first to show off his bulk, even as he worked to gain the weight required for the role. Yokozuna's career took off as he headed into the 1993 Royal Rumble as a potential favorite. In the Rumble, he threw out Owen Hart, Bob Backlund, and Macho Man Randy Savage to win the Rumble, announcing his movement towards main event status. At WrestleMania 9, Yokozuna faced, uh, faced off against Bret the Hitman Hart for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship. During the match, Hart seemed to be in control, locking in the sharpshooter, until Fuji threw salt in the champion's face. Hart Blinded was taken out by Yokozuna, who shockingly won the world title. As he and Mr. Fuji celebrated, Hulk Hogan came out from the back to protest the decision. Mr. Fuji arrogantly made a claim and challenged the Hulkster, and Hogan accepted, quickly defeating Yokozuna in less than a minute to take away the championship. This gave Yokozuna one of the shortest title reigns in WWF's history. Yokozuna and Hogan continued to feud over the next few months, leading up to the very first King of the Ring pay-per-view. Once again, Hogan seemed to be in control. During the match, a Japanese photographer came out and flashed an exploding light bulb into the face of Hulk Hogan. The Hulkster down, Yokozuna went for the pin and was the brand new World Wrestling Federation champion. To celebrate his victory, he held a body slam competition aboard the USS Intrepid on Independence Day. Many wrestlers and athletes tried to body slam the mighty Yokozuna with no success. Lex Luger stepped forward, picked him up, and slammed him on the deck, showing great strength. This made Luger the next major challenger to Yokozuna's title reign. At SummerSlam 93, Yokozuna and a newly reborn patriot Lex Luger fought it out for the WWF Championship. 568 pounds of Polynesian fury. Upon entering the World Wrestling Federation, the behemoth powered straight to the top. Eventually meeting then-champion Hulk Hogan at the inaugural King of the Ring Spectacular. Hogan is down, and here comes Yokozuna, and he dropped the leg. Yokozuna covers him. Yokozuna has defeated Hulk Hogan. At that point, as champion, the mighty Yokozuna launched a horrific campaign through every American athlete he could find, culminating in his ultimate insult challenging any American to body slam him on the 4th of July aboard the USS Intrepid in New York Harbor. After every superstar, every football player and basketball player attempted and failed, one man arrived by helicopter and made history. I can't believe it! It's Lex Luger! Yokozuna charges him, and Luger sidesteps him. Luger nails him with that big forearm. Yokozuna's in a daze. Luger's got him up. He did it. Luger slammed him. The momentum of that slam propelled the now famous Lex Express Tour across.
across America as Lex Luger campaigned for his shot on the ring at the colossal Yokozuna. That shot arrived at SummerSlam in one of the most anticipated title matches of all time. The match lived up to its billing as Lex Luger knocked Yokozuna out, leaving Lex with a win, but Yokozuna with the title. Other chances came and went for Lex, but next week, an opportunity of a lifetime arrives for one half of the Allied Powers. It's Lex Luger against Yokozuna. Winner gets the coveted final spot in the King of the Ring tournament. Unfortunately for Luger, the title did not change hands because Yokozuna lost via countout. But it made it seem like Luger had a chance against the humongous foe. They continued to feud up until the Survivor Series, where he each chose a team of allies for an elimination match. Yokozuna chose the Rougeau brothers and Ludwig Borga to form the international team of wrestlers that hated America. Luger brought in true Americans to the undefeated Tatanka and the Steiner brothers. These teams would change soon, though, as Yokozuna and Ludwig Borga attacked Tatanka during a match, both ending his winning streak and injuring his ribs from a bonsai squash, or the bonsai drop. Luger then put one of the Rougeaus, Pierre, out of commission with his flying forearm. Both teams found a replacement as Crush joined Yokozuna's team, while the Undertaker surprisingly sided with Luger. The foreign fanatics and the All-Americans met up at their Survivor Series ready for war, which led to Luger's team being victorious. But the actions of this match led to a feud between Yokozuna and the Undertaker, where for the very first time, Yokozuna looked terrified. The sumo champion seemed to be completely overmatched, for the very first time, against The Undertaker. He eventually was forced to accept a casket match with The Undertaker at the 1994 Royal Rumble, where all the odds looked to be in The Undertaker's favor. With the help of dozens of WWF superstars, the heels coming out and attacking The Undertaker, Yokozuna was able to bury The Undertaker in the casket, giving the win to Yokozuna. This led to one of the most spiritual endings to a match in WWF history, especially the career of The Undertaker, where The Undertaker seemed to resurrect from the dead, rising from the casket into the spiritual world. Going into WrestleMania 10, having dealt with The Undertaker, Yokozuna seemed more confident than ever in himself. He continued his long-running feud with Luger, facing off against him one more time, Thanks in part to Mr. Perfect being the special guest referee, Yokozuna won via disqualification over Luger. Then, as a result of the double win between Luger and Bret Hart at the Royal Rumble, Yokozuna had to go back-to-back in title defenses and take on Bret Hart in the main event of WrestleMania 10. Roddy Roddy Piper, the special referee for that contest, showed Yokozuna slipping off of the middle rope as the bonsai drop was going into effect. Bret Hart took the cover and became WWF champion. Yokozuna's main event status would soon begin to fade away as he never really again fully challenged for the world championship. The two met again in another casket match between The Undertaker and Yokozuna in 1994 at the Survivor Series. This time with 
actor karate expert Chuck Norris as the special referee to keep the other superstars or heels away from ringside. Without their help, Yokozuna could not win and eventually ended up being locked inside the casket. This was Yokozuna's last hurrah in the WWF for a time as he wrestled only briefly on the, in the mid-card before taking some time off. Then in April of 95, Owen Hart began promising that he would have a great tag team partner to face off against the Smoking Guns at WrestleMania 11 for the WWF Tag Team Championship. At the event, Yokozuna became known as his partner, and the surprisingly diverse tag team managed to take out the guns and take away the gold. Yokozuna was no longer in great shape, having gained too much weight. Hart carried the team, much like Haku carried the Colossal Connection when Andre the Giant was faltering. Then in September of 95, Yokozuna teamed up with Davy Boy Smith to take on Shawn Michaels and Diesel with the belts on the line. During the match, Owen Hart came to the ring, only to be pinned by Diesel. The next day, due to protests from the team, President Gorilla Monsoon reluctantly returned the belts to Yokozuna and Hart since Hart was not an official part of the match. Unfortunately for the team, their second reign was much shorter, as the Smoking Guns defeated them that night for the belts. This put an end for the team, with both going their separate ways. Yokozuna would have very little more success in the WWF. He competed in the 96 Royal Rumble. He managed to eliminate three wrestlers, though, before being tossed out by Shawn Michaels, the eventual winner. Soon after, Yokozuna dropped Jim Cornette and Mr. Fuji and began a short face stint, speaking English to the fans and challenging newcomer Vader to numerous matches. You know, we always say here in the World Wrestling Federation that anything can happen. Well, that statement could never be truer than right now. For almost three years, James E. Cornette forbid Yokozuna to speak for himself. Well, right here and right now, for the first time ever, the 650-pound mammoth Yokozuna has something to say. Jim Cornette, for nearly three years, I stood in the shadows while you hot dog that spotlight. Well, it's my turn because I gave you the gold and yet you get all the credit and all the money. And as far as you owe it on, the only gold you wore is when you hid behind me. Me! And British Bulldog, brother, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because this 650 pounds of bad attitude is going to burn Camp Cornette down to the ground. Bonsai! Yokozuna stayed on the WWF roster for a while afterwards, as he worked to lose the weight he had put on. Despite dropping a reported 100 pounds, though, he still could not lose enough to satisfy the WWF officials. He was still too heavy, nearly 600 pounds, and could not move fluidly in the ring as once he had. He was eventually released from the WWF, although rumors persisted for many years that he would be brought back if he lost enough weight. That was never meant to be. Yokozuna appeared on the independent circuit infrequently, while also wrestling overseas in the UK at times. 
a year later after an incident where he was on a Heroes of Wrestling pay-per-view. While on tour in Great Britain for WrestleMania 2000, not connected with the WWF, Rodney Anoa was found dead in his Liverpool hotel room on October 23rd of 2000, only weeks after celebrating his 34th birthday. Yokozuna will always be remembered by WWF fans for his size and sheer power. For a time, it seemed that no other wrestlers could touch him as he ran rampant on the top of the Federation's heavyweight ladder. He may not have had the longevity on top of the business, but he definitely was a Hall of Famer in all of our hearts. Another inductee to the WWE 2012 Hall of Fame is none other than Mil Mascaras, who has starred in several films with fellow luchadors. He is a member of one of Mexico's most prominent wrestling families, along with his brothers Jose and Pablo, as well as Jose's nephew, Alberto Del Rio, in the WWE. Due to time restraints, we won't go into much detail of his career because I truly feel that we could talk about Mil Mascaras in a special edition where we look at the greatest Mexican superstars in professional wrestling. So I want to play a clip of the official announcement by Triple H of him being inducted into the 2012 WWE Hall of Fame. My Spanish is not so good. Maybe you could help me. He says that his Spanish is not good and he's asking me to help him in the traduction. I've had the thrill as a competitor to come here to Mexico many, many times. He vivido la emoción que significa como competidor venir aquí en muchas ocasiones a México. But it's my biggest thrill as COO to finally bring Raw and SmackDown television here to Mexico. Pero nada se compara a la emoción como gerente de operaciones al finalmente poder traer aquí la transmisión en vivo de Roy SmackDown a México. And tonight it's my honor to bring out here for all of you a true living legend. Y para mí es un verdadero honor presentarles hoy a una verdadera leyenda viviente. He is a true global superstar, and he is one of your own. He is the man of a thousand masks, Mil Mascaras! Please, uh... Mill, it's an honor and a thrill for us to have you here tonight as part of the WWE's first TV tapings here in Mexico. Es un honor para nosotros, Mil Máscaras, el tenerlo aquí presente en las primeras transmisiones en vivo de nuestros programas estrellas, Roy SmackDown. But I've also asked you to come out here because I'm about to hopefully request that you will give us another honor. Pero he venido aquí para respetuosamente pedirle el favor de que nos haga realidad otro pedido. 
As I think everybody around the world knows, April 1st, 2012, from Miami, Florida, emanates the granddaddy of them all, WrestleMania. Como creo que todos ustedes ya saben, el primero de abril del próximo año 2012, emana desde la capital del sol, Miami, Florida, el programa premier del entretenimiento a nivel mundial, WrestleMania. And the night before WrestleMania, there's a tremendous night that is a huge honor for everybody in the WWE. La víspera de WrestleMania se celebra una noche que es sumamente importante para la WWE. And I am hoping that Mill Mascaras will be there that night as we induct him into the 2012 WWE Hall of Fame. Y tengo la esperanza de que Mil Máscaras esté allí presente para exaltarlo como miembro del Salón de la Fama de la WWE en el año 2012. Gracias, gracias. La sencilla razón por la cual me están poniendo en el Hall de la Fama es que hace 40 años yo hice un debut como primer enmascarado y único en Nueva York en el Madison Square Garden. En ese entonces y todavía la capital de la lucha libre profesional. No había habido ningún enmascarado hasta que llegué yo al Madison Square Garden el Big Man Senior me introdujo allí con mucho éxito. Luché muchas ocasiones para WWE. Ahora WWE, que es extraordinario. No nada más. Están luchando ahora en todo el mundo. Anteriormente era nada más en los Estados Unidos. Ahora tienen estaciones en todo el mundo. Así como están el día de hoy aquí, tienen llenos súper, súper interesantes. Es lo mismo en la China que en el Japón, que en toda Europa, que en toda Asia completamente. Y ahora en América. Pues, ¿qué les queda decir? Muchas gracias. Thank you, S. Thank you, Vince. Thank you, WWE. Y gracias, México. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias a todos. Gracias. At this time, I would like to introduce to you. Oh, he may not get up. The baddest man on the planet. It's over. It's over. Ladies and gentlemen, Iron Mike Tyson. The youngest and most dominant world champion in boxing's history. And the most controversial athlete of the 20th century, Mike Tyson, created a media hailstorm wherever he went. Mike Tyson is the hottest thing in sports.
But when Tyson appeared at the 1998 Royal Rumble and on Raw the next night, the road to WrestleMania 14 took an unexpected turn. At WrestleMania, Iron Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson is standing in Stone Cold's ring. When you step in this ring, you're messing with Stone Cold Steve Austin. So here's to you. Mike Tyson is back in the fight, this time on a wrestling match. Mike Tyson is a judge. He's the enforcer. Tyson will be the so-called enforcer. WrestleMania. WrestleMania. Mike Tyson. WrestleMania. With a celebrity guest garnering as much attention to WrestleMania 14 as the main event itself, all eyes were on Tyson at ringside for one of the most important matches in WWE history. The stagger by Tyson in. Austin is the champion. The Austin era has begun. World champion, boxing legend, pop culture icon. Doesn't matter of opinion, doesn't matter of opinion. Tyson remains one of the most recognizable faces and names in all of sports. If you were six feet tall and you fought Mike Tyson, after he hit you with one of his uppercuts, you were six feet four. Vintage Tyson! It is our privilege to induct the baddest man on the planet into the celebrity wing of the WWE Hall of Fame. They don't put me in the Hall of Fame. They shouldn't have a Hall of Fame. Iron Mike Tyson. Tell you, DX is gonna kick your ass right now. You think you can tell us what to do? Yeah. You think you can tell us what to wear? You think you better? Well, you better get ready to bow to the master. Yeah, boy. Yo, you can try and hold me down if you want to. All the garbage I've been through, think I'm scared of you, I'll kill you. Don't got a care in the world of hell, but the world. Man like me got dreams to take over the world. Now I've been treated like dirt to birth, and it hurts. Got me ripping off my shirt, ready to hurt. Look in my eyes. Iron Mike Tyson. Of course, we know his legendary career as a boxer, but this is a professional wrestling podcast. CM Punk will be proud, and therefore we're going to look at the professional wrestling career of Iron Mike Tyson. Short, but effective in the nature his role played in turning the professional wrestling business business exclusively for the World Wrestling Federation. No one can deny that his involvement at WrestleMania 14 was crucial to the success that World Wrestling Federation had during the Attitude Era. Sure, celebrities come and go in wrestling, especially the WWF. We saw it at WrestleMania 2, the Celebrity Battle Royal with Hall of Famers, with uh, Hall of Fame football players, legendary football players and athletes. We've seen over the years at WrestleMania celebrities involved. We've seen other pay-per-views where celebrities have made appearances in the audience, in the ring, backstage... But no one has made such a drastic impact and dramatic impact in professional wrestling than Iron Mike Tyson. Being added as the special, quote-unquote, enforcer for the main event at WrestleMania 14, Iron Mike Tyson drew and he was nothing... He was a media magnet, for lack of a better term. He drew attention, and that's what the WWF wanted. Him being brought in as the special, quote-unquote, 
enforcer in the main event WWF Championship match between Shawn Michaels and Stone Cold Steve Austin made such an impact in the media and in the business itself. What will Mike Tyson do? This juggernaut, this media juggernaut, this ticking time bomb. You know, no, nothing taking away from Brian Pillman, but Mike Tyson was a media ticking time bomb. Is he going to snap and knock out Stone Cold? People thought the feud between Stone Cold and Mike Tyson was legit and true to life. So people drew their attention to the World Wrestling Federation while the WWF was getting handed to in the Monday Night Wars by WCW. Mike Tyson set a new standard for celebrity involvement in professional wrestling. And the celebrity wing, yes, you can question some people there inducted, Drew Carey and such, but no one can deny Mike Tyson made one of the biggest impacts, one of the biggest changes. He made one of the greatest changes in professional wrestling history. More so than a lot of wrestlers have made an impact on the on the industry. Mike Tyson steered the Attitude Era in the late 90s to what it, we knew it was to this very day. Mike Tyson set the standard for celebrities in professional wrestling. The Four Horsemen is not just an idea. It's a theme. It's a state of being. It's a state of mind. You have got the cream of the crop. Rick Flair, Anderson, Blanchard, Barry Windham, J.J. Dillon. We are the Four Horsemen. In 1985, four individual champions joined forces as one to overtake an industry. They formed this huge conglomerate of stars that nobody could touch. These guys were like the violent athletic version of corporate greed. The Four Horsemen redefined the role of the antagonist faction during their two decades of prominence and were a group fans loved to hate but had to respect. Arn Anderson was the enforcer of the group, by far the toughest member of the Four Horsemen. Arn never quite got credit for the amazing talent that he was in this industry. I don't want to say I told you so. I don't want to blow our own horn, but toot, toot. I thought J.J. Dillon was one of the great managers. And to me, when J.J. Dillon said something, it really carried weight. How could I top that? Along with the infamous James J. Dillon, Tully Blanchard is on top of the whole heap one more time. Tully Blanchard was the first cool bad guy that I ever saw. We can get down and be dirty with the dirtiest of them all. But we can also be ha, as clean as they come. Uh, Barry Winner is the most natural gifted athlete ever to walk into our business. I am the epitome of wrestling and the very best that there will ever be. Barry is so good that he can blend in with anybody. Ric Flair was the ultimate. He was the diamond in that crew. It is so hard to be humble when you're looking like Ric Flair. The horsemen, as they always say, they're the best thing going today. We are the best at what we do. Where are the days and nights? We stand in our class by ourselves. We show the world how it could be. We, as a unit, have dominated this sport. We owned it all for the world to see. We were riding in limousines, flying around in private planes. We just, you know, we just wanted to have fun. Never go 
people all over the country, the people say, the horsemen are coming, and all the women go crazy. This is it right here. I think we'll be considered the greatest wrestling faction of all time. Where are the days and nights? Can't beat the Forestman, ever. We show the world how it could be. Let's look at the legendary Four Horsemen. We'll go into more detail on the impact the Four Horsemen made as a collective group in the Horseman Files. 1985 debuted a couple of weeks ago, the 1985 edition of the Horseman Files, and we'll re-debut that in the coming weeks as we relaunch our Horseman Files edition as we look on the inaugural naming year for the Horseman, 1986. They started to form in 85, and in 86 is where the Horsemen took off. So the Horsemen Files will go into more detail on the impact this collective group meant to professional wrestling. So we're going to talk individually, the performers, and the impact they made in professional wrestling. Let's start off with the brains behind the brawn, the man behind the muscle, the manager of the Four Horsemen, James J. Dillon. Well, first things first, Tony. Uh, we heard Lex Luger a little earlier in today's program, and boy, he sounds like a man that's got his day in court, and he's he's really in a panic. He's got everything nicely documented. He's got little bits and pieces here and there of videotape because it's obvious to me, very obvious, that he's a very, very desperate man. I mean, here's a, a an individual that I agree at one point was the fastest rising star on the horizon. And if you go back not but a few short months ago, really, he had it all. I mean, he was rubbing elbows with the world heavyweight champion. He was rubbing elbows with the world tag team champions. He was riding in limousines. He had beautiful women hanging around him. He was the talk of the wrestling world because, frankly, we were carrying him. And now, whether it was jealousy or whatever caused it, I don't know, he's backed himself into a corner, and the realization has suddenly come to him just where he is. He's a man out all alone with no friends. Maybe he's got one friend, but what has he really got? Because he's got a disgruntled individual that he himself could not cuss the mustard. He couldn't hang with the big boys. And, of course, I'm talking about Ole Anderson. Champ, please let Tully and Arn handle the so-called total package. And Mr. Sting, I want you to handle that personally because only you can yeah, handle that. No doubt in my mind, James J. And first of all, let's let the whole world know that the family that you know as the horsemen is more united and standing taller and better than ever before. Because whether you people out there, and I'm going to talk real deliberately and real slow, whether you like it or not, we are the three world champions. And in our sport, 
God bless all the rest of them, but they're all playing catch-up ball. Because unless you're a world champion, you're just trying to get where the horsemen have been for God only knows how long. <laughs> and Luger, do you remember the nights in the penthouse in the silk sheets with the soft skin and the long brown hair jumping at every command of the nature boy? Do you remember what it was like to be a high roller, huh? throwing money around? Do you remember? Do you remember what it was like riding in the limousines? Telling which, which way to go? Telling the world that you had it by the ass and knowing it. Now Sting, another musclehead, another punk that paints his face and would have me think for one moment of my great existence that you're ready to jump on Space Mountain? Are you kidding me, pal? You're looking at a man that has bled, that has crashed in airplanes, that can fly faster than a speeding bullet, that can make love to women 48 hours nonstop, and can wrestle any man alive for 60 minutes or longer. You're looking at the world champion and sting, pretty boy. Mama's boy, whatever you are, the next time you call me out, I'm gonna walk down that aisle and I'm gonna stitch you up. I'm gonna kick you where it's illegal. I'm gonna hook your eye. I'm gonna pull at your nose. And pal, then I'm gonna bring down Tully and Arn to take care of the rest because buddy, this business is serious. It's the greatest sport in the world. And until you've paid the price, don't call or knock on the door of the four horsemen. Got it. Ooh. No one can deny the impact the horsemen made in professional wrestling. And no one can deny the impact that J.J. Dillon made on the four horsemen. Former wrestler, he showed up. Gave it his all, wasn't the most talented, but he had charisma that translated to drawing heat and drawing money and puts butts in which put butts into seats, and that's all they cared about at the time. Let's look over some of the accolades JJ Dillon had in professional wrestling. He was involved with the AJPW Championship Carnival in nineteen seventy seven. He competed in the league, which was won by Giant Baba. He won the NWA Western States tag team titles in the tournament in which Dylan and Blackjack Mulligan competed in the tournament. He competed with Blackjack Mulligan in the NWA Western States Tag Team Title Tournament, June 14th in 1979. He didn't win, but he made an impact in professional wrestling. At Starrcade 85, Dylan won a bull rope match over Ron Bass. At NWA AWA Star Wars, December 29th of 1985, Dylan fell to Ron Bass. At NWA Great American Bash of 87, July 4th, the Four Horsemen. All together, this time though, Lex Luger involved. And the Four Horsemen lost a War Games match to Dusty Rose, Nikita Koloff, Paul Ellering, and the Road Warriors. The NWA 3rd Annual Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Tag Team Tournament Cup. 
say that three times fast, in April of 88, he competed in a non-tournament match and lost a bull rut match to the Midnight Rider, which we all know was Dusty Rhodes. He had some extensive PWI achievements. He was 1982 Manager of the Year, as well as in 83, 84, he was the third runner-up, and 87, he was first runner-up, and then 88, he took back the title of Manager of the Year for Pro Wrestling Illustrated. No one can deny the impact that J.J. Dillon made in professional wrestling. He summed everything up as each horseman spoke behind the mic. J.J. would wrap it up so eloquently to show why they should be coming to the arena to watch the horsemen compete. J.J. Dillon set the standard for managers, bar none. And speaking of the four horsemen, Tony Blanchard walks out here, gets in the ring, defends the world TV title, and once again shows why he is a member of the elite force known as the four horsemen. One, two, three. And Tony Schiavone, speaking of clean, let's take a look at this. You know... One of the ten best-dressed men in America happens to be your world champion. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking at this style, this is it. Read it, Tony. Read it, brother. I believe that says custom-styled for the world champion by Michaels of Kansas City. Now, Barry Windham, you walked out here a little while ago, and you had the audacity to cry the blues. To condemn the four horsemen, you're talking about the elite. You're talking about the box office babies, the four horsemen. We put people in seats. You know why? Come here, Tony. You know why? You know why? Because when we walk in here, Tony Shivani, there's always 10, 12, sometimes 15,000 people. You know why? Because we got these. Get these. This is what the sport's all about. Right here. Get this Put the camera on that, boys. This is the World Heavyweight Championship belt. Owned, operated, manipulated by me. So, Barry Windham, when you talk about what you're going to do, quit talking and do it. Barry Windham. The early years for Barry Windham consisted of him being trained by his father, Blackjack Mulligan, and popular world champion Harley Race. Speaking of the previous Hall of Famer, he debuted on November 27, 1979, against J.J. Dillon in Odessa, Texas, when he was 19 years old. Much of his early career was in the NWA's championship wrestling from Florida. Prior to FCW, there was championship wrestling from Florida. He was a fan favorite for most of his early and middle periods of his career, having great success in singles and tag action. Wyndham had notable feuds with Kevin Sullivan and his army. With his brother-in-law, Mike Rotunda, Wyndham formed a tag team in 1984. The duo captured the NWA Florida United States Tag Team Championship three times between March and May of 1984. Then it led him to the World Wrestling Federation and the U.S. Express. Rotunda and Wyndham were signed by the WWF in October of 84. They debuted in the WWF as babyfaces on November 17th of that year, and it was that edition of Maple Leaf Wrestling. Their tag team was named the U.S. Express. They quickly made an impact in the WWF's tag team division as they beat the North-South Connection, 
Dick Murdoch and Adrian Adonis for the very first WWF Tag Team Championship on January 21st, 1985, at a house show in Hartford, Connecticut. At the very first ever WrestleMania, the U.S. Express dropped the titles to the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. On the July 13th edition of Championship Wrestling, they beat Sheik and Volkov for their second and final WWF Tag Team Championship, which they lost to the Dream Team, Greg Valentine and Brutus Beefcake. In Philadelphia at the Spectrum on August 24th, that led them back over to the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. Barry Wyndham went back to Championship Wrestling from Florida after departing the WWF. Wyndham worked an extended stint in the NWA. He worked in the NWA's territory, Championship Wrestling from Florida, as a babyface. The CWF is where he was most notably wrestling in the main event of the Battle of the Belts 2 for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship against Ric Flair and feuded over the NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship with Ron Bass. This is when Wyndham started to get more popularity in terms of his work ethic and his ability inside the squared circle and you really thought Wyndham was a main event player. In the fall of 86, he shifted to NWA's Jim Crockett promotions as a babyface where he had many memorable matches with Nature Boy Ric Flair. These include matches going to 60 minutes, to time limit draws, and even some extending beyond an hour of action. He shifted back to the tag team division shortly after. On December 9th of 86, Wyndham and Ron Garvin defeated Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev for the U.S. Tag Team Championship. Their biggest feud as a team was with the Minot Express, Bobby Inn and Stan Lane, managed by Jim Cornette. The Minot Express were never able to beat Wyndham and Garvin for the titles. They did, though, however, however, lose the titles to Ivan Koloff and Dick Murdoch in the spring of 87. At the time of the annual Jim Crockett Memorial Tag Team Tournament, known as the Crockett Cup, Wyndham formed an alliance with Lex Luger, who would turn his back on Wyndham when they were both in the NWA shortly afterward, when Luger had aspirations of joining the Four Horsemen. Rather than enter the tournament as a team, the NWA split up Wyndham and Garvin. Garvin instead teamed with his stepson, Jimmy Garvin, in the storyline of the NWA. They were called the Garvin Brothers. Wyndham, after a brief encounter with Ric Flair for the NWA World Championship later that year, he spent the rest of 87 in the mid-card. At NWA's first pay-per-view, Starkey 87, Chi-Town Heat, he lost to UWF heavyweight champion Dr. Death Steve Williams. In 1988, Wyndham began rising up the NWA ranks once again. He started off by dropping the Western States Heritage title to Larry Zbysko at Bunkhouse Stampede. And that is what led him into the Four Horsemen in 1988. On March 27th of 1988, the addition was of Clash of the Champions. He teamed up with Lex Luger to win the NWA World Tag Team Championship from Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard of the Horsemen. A few weeks later, on April 20th, in Jacksonville, Florida, a swerve took place where Wyndham betrayed Luger, causing the team to lose the titles back to Blanchard and Anderson. Wyndham turned heel and joined Ric Flair's stable, the Four Horsemen, as his heel turn was consisted the most shocking at the time. 
In addition, he began using a black glove as well as a claw hold, making it his finisher, which was a signature move of his father, Blackjack Mulligan. He went back to singles competition and defeated Nikita Koloff in a tournament final to win the vacant NWA United States Championship. When the NWA suspended the then-champion Dusty Rhodes, Wyndham won the tournament to become the U.S. champion. Wyndham was a dominant U.S. champion and reigned for nine months. His contract with the NWA expired in March of 89, and he dropped the belt to Lex Luger at Chi-Town Rumble in February of that year. That led to his return to the WWF. Wyndham returned to the WWF in June of 89 as the Widowmaker. Despite the nickname, Wyndham didn't change his image much, portraying a heel cowboy type character. He targeted or attempted to target Hulk Hogan, but never materialized when Wyndham left the company in October due to personal reasons. He was undefeated during his second WWF run and was to have been on Randy Savage's Survivor Series team, but then was replaced by Earthquake upon his departure. That led him back over to WCW in 1990, rejoining the Four Horsemen. At the time, Wyndham returned to WCW in May of 90 and rejoined the Four Horsemen, which at that point consisted of Flair, Arn Anderson, Sid Vicious, and Ole Anderson, who was the only semi-active wrestler at the time. He wasn't wrestling on a full-time basis to fit the Horseman schedule. Good. Okay. First, I'm going to ask you, you were with the NWA, then WWF, then NWA, WWF. Why, why does a wrestler jump back and forth? Well, actually, I only went back and forth one time, and uh, the reason was uh, the WWF offered me a contract that uh, you know, it, was, it was pretty lucrative at the time, and uh, I went ahead and went with uh, Vince McMahon Jr., and uh, I stayed with them for about a year, and uh, things actually didn't work out with us contract-wise, and and uh, we had a few disagreements over over the contract, so we just thought it'd be better if we went our own separate ways. Uh, the NWA has always done, you know, what I believed, what I thought wrestling should be, the way I wanted to wrestle. You know, I go into a match against an opponent, and I know I'm going I'm to wrestle. I'm not going to take a bird to the ring with me on, on my shoulder, or, or a snake, or an alligator, or anything like that. Wrestling is wrestling, and professional wrestling is how I make my living. Uh, with the NWA, like I said, uh, now I'm facing the, the very best that the, the NWA has to offer. As far as wrestling goes, the, the very best that wrestling has to offer, and that's Ric Flair. And the World Heavyweight Championship, whether it be the World Wrestling Federation or the NWA, has always been a goal of mine. I feel that I can attain those goals if I want to be world champion, that I am of world championship caliber. So by beating Ric Flair or wrestling Ric Flair, I'm reaching to my goals, and that's the reason I'm here in the NWA. Well, no, not necessarily. Uh, you know, I guess uh, there's a, a certain group in professional wrestling that they're going to make a certain amount of money anyway. And just to, to my luck or skill or whatever uh, I attribute it to, I'm lucky to be a part of that group. So whether I was in the WWF or in the NWA, you know, the money would be basically the same. Like I said, it's just the goal that I'm after, really, the World Heavyweight Championship. You, uh, you're you kind of reunited, sort of, with your old packing partner in WWF and uh, Mike Rotunda. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's not really common knowledge, but Mike Rotunda is also my brother-in-law. He uh, married my sister. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike and I haven't really gotten to reform our tag team. But, uh, you know, I'm sure there will be times, like uh, this tournament, for instance, I was hoping, kind of hoping that, he and I would be able to reform the combination and, and possibly 
you know, it, it wasn't too far out of sight to win the thing because we had well, held the uh, World uh, Tag Team Championships with the WWF before. But uh, just as it came up, Mike had another uh, partner and, and uh, the World Championship match came up for me, so it just worked out that way this time. Your dad with the WWF, does that create any problems? No, none at all. And my father has always been his own man, his own type of wrestler. You know, he doesn't necessarily wrestle the way that, that, uh, that I do, but you know, you gotta let your dad do what he wants to do, and that's the way it is here. People are saying that Barry Wyndham is going to be the next champion. Well, that's what I'm hoping for, and one of these days, Ric Flair will be mine, and that championship will be mine. Great, thank you. And from there, you saw Ole turn into a manager in that managerial role once Wyndham joined. He defeated Doug Furness, the late Doug Furness, on June 13th of the 1990 edition of Clash of the Champions. He spent most of the time that year in tag matches with the other horsemen. After feuding with Sting and other top stars, Wyndham was looking for his new niche in WCW. One of the most famous vignettes was shot in Atlanta, Georgia, in a ghetto before a series of matchups between Barry Wyndham and Arn Anderson and the tag team of Doom. A famous quote from Arn Anderson to Barry Wyndham, You know something, B.W.? When I took a look at this dump, it ain't the Helmsley College, pal. Barry responds, yeah, but it's a lot cheaper. One of the famous skits, and most popular, which were very few at the time, in the early 90s from WCW. In 91, Wyndham continued teaming with Anderson and Sid Vicious. And we saw Wyndham feud with Brian Pillman in the spring of 91, culminating in a taped fist match at Super Brawl 1, Return of the Rising Sun, which Wyndham won. Then, after a series of matches, which involved heel manager at the time, Harley Race, managing Lex Luger, Great American Bash 91, passing by, TV tapings in Atlanta, Georgia, there were rumblings that Barry Wyndham was going to challenge Ric Flair for the World Heavyweight Championship. In October of 91, Wyndham formed a tag team with Dustin Rhodes and feuded with WCW World Tag Team Champions, the Enforcers, Arn Anderson and Larry Zbysko. This is around the time when Ric Flair was departing to the World Wrestling Federation. At Halloween Havoc 91 Chamber of Horrors, Anderson and Zbysko slammed a car door on Wyndham's hand, breaking it and putting him out of action for a while. When Ric Flair was fired by WCW, they looked to Barry Wyndham as the possible replacement for Flair, or he moved up the ladder as a top contender. But from 91 to 94, we saw face turn to heel turn, back and forth, baby face to heel. Barry Wyndham was trying to find a niche in World Championship Wrestling, from teaming up with Dustin Rhodes, teaming to, from teaming to Brian Pillman, baby face to heel. There was no identity for Wyndham from 91 to 94 in WCW. From Super Bowl 1 to Super Bowl 3, Wyndham went back and forth. Then in 1996, we saw his return to the WWF as the Stalker, wearing cam camouflage face paint as well as being billed from the environment. It was hampered by last-minute changes. Wyndham cut promos as a heel, displaying the Stalker as a deranged and dangerous former military man. And with little to no fanfare, the gimmick was scrapped. This led to the New Blackjacks. Wyndham later formed the New Blackjacks with Justin Hawk Bradshaw. We now know him as JBL. The team didn't last long as Wyndham turned on Bradshaw to join Jim Cornette's NWA faction in 1998. The angle was scrapped months later and Wyndham left 
for WCW once again. This leads us to the West Texas Rednecks. In his last World Championship run, in his last World Championship Wrestling run, Barry Windham was originally brought back to WCW by Eric Bischoff, who had him turn on Ric Flair. Barry was then loosely associated with Bischoff's NWO Hollywood crew for a while before forming a tag team with Kurt Henning. At Super Bowl IX, Henning and Wyndham defeated Chris Benoit and Malenko in the finals of a tag team tournament to win the vacant WCW World Tag Team Championship. Barry re-injured his knee during this period, but would return as a part of the West Texas Rednecks in mid-99. They were supposed to be a heel group to feud with rapper Master P's No Limit Soldiers. This was the questionable time of WCW. But the Southern fans of WCW's cheered the Rednecks, going against what WCW management and booking had hoped for. And the angle was eventually dropped, but everyone remembers the Rap is Crap song. Girls, I like Willie Nelson, and don't forget about Merle. There's only one thing that I hate, cause it's a bunch of crap. I hate rap. I like NASCAR racing, Richard Petty's still the king. Yeah, they call me a redneck, but you know that's a beautiful thing. There's only one thing that I hate. Cause it's a bunch of crap I hate rap There's only one thing that I hate Cause it's a bunch of crap I hate rap Rap is crap Rap is crap The group consisted of his brother Kendall Wyndham, Kurt Henning, and Bobby Duncan Jr., and Duncan was replaced by Curly Bill after he was injured and shortly before the group was disbanded. And the Redneck storyline was dropped. And then both Barry and Kendall were shortly released after winning the World Tag Team Championship in August of 99 on Nitro. But then they lost them back to Harlem Heat at Fall Brawl, which led to their release from World Championship Wrestling. After a very brief independent run with his brother Kendall, he went into semi-retirement. The first we saw of him right after was a part of the Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen DVD. And then he became a road agent with the World Wrestling Entertainment at the time, then was released in 2008. No one can deny that Barry Windham is one of the greatest superstars to ever grace the squared circle, whether a part of the Horsemen or on his own. Barry Windham set the standard for in-ring competition in the world of professional wrestling, and he definitely made his Hall of Fame father proud. The National Heavyweight Champion, James J. Dell. What in the world is this, J.J.? Well, I want to relive Ron Garvin's nightmare for a few people that may have missed it. Here I am, Tully Blanchard, the National Heavyweight Champion, standing over top of the prone Ronnie Garvin. Ronnie Garvin, I know you don't know what day of the week is, but it's Friday. It's Friday, May 23rd. Tully Blanchard just knocked you out. First time in your career. What do you have to say? You I say, quit. I, I, what? I quit. I quit. I quit. I quit. <laughs> I quit! Ah, Ronnie Garvin! Ah, I can't imagine 
You know, you have to think of that thought morning, noon, and night. Every breath, every bite of food, every drink of drink you have, Ronnie Garvin, every waking moment, every nightmare you have is you being carried out. <laughs> and I'm the man that did it. James J. Dillon and I, Tully Blanchard Enterprises, Ronnie Garvin. And now you want to go Cape Fist. Ten three-minute rounds to separate the men from the boys. Well, Ronnie Garvin, are you sure? Are you truly and truly sure every time you look at that mirror, every morning, every night, convince yourself that you're really as tough and as bad as you are? Ronnie Garvin, are you sure at the Great American Bashes you want 10 three-minute mounts with me? Because, Ronnie Garvin, I am the only man, the only man on the face of this earth that has had you carried out of any arena from one end of the world to the other in professional wrestling. That's right, Ronnie Garvin. Do you want to walk that aisle and set foot back in the ring with the man that knocked out the hands of stone? Oh, oh, the new name, what is it, James? Hands of Mars. <laughs> ordinary tape. <laughs> oh, that's right. No excuses. Ordinary, ordinary tape. You know, him and Dusty Rhodes. Athlete. Him and Dusty Rhodes. Oh, yeah, every athlete uses this ordinary roller tape. Tried the big embarrassment, but the embarrassment backfired. And you want to get in the ring with me, the bashes? That's fine with me, Garvin, because my hands will be taped up just like Sugar Ray's Leonard's were. Ha-ha, Ronnie Garvin. Adios. All right, fans, here we go. We're ready with action to the ring. Tully Blanchard. What can you say? As the son of wrestling promoter and former American Wrestling Association star Joe Blanchard, Tully was involved in professional wrestling at a very young age. He began selling programs and refreshments at the arenas at the age of 10 and worked as a referee when he was older. Blanchard attended West Texas State University where he played American football, first as a quarterback and then as a defensive end, alongside fellow future wrestlers Tito Santana and Ted DiBiase. This leads us to talk about Tully's experience in Southwest Championship Wrestling. After graduating, he trained as a wrestler and eventually wrestled for SCW, where he also held a number of backstage production and creative positions. Blanchard was very successful in SCW, starting out as a face and Timmy with his father in a feud with the Funks, Dorian Terry. He later teamed regularly with Gino Hernandez in a heel tag team known as the Dynamic Duo. They held both the world and tag team titles. Eventually, Hernandez left for world-class championship wrestling. Blanchard then began wrestling with the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. The Mid-Atlantic promotion was his territory. Blanchard came to Jim Crockett Jr.'s Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling in early 1984. He immediately entered into a feud with Mark Youngblood over the NWA Television Championship which would later be renamed the NWA World Television Championship and then WCW World Television title. Blanchard eventually won the title on March 28th of 84 and defended the title against some of the top contenders in the territory, such as Ricky Steamboat, whom he faced at Starcade 84. Blanchard and Dusty Rhodes began a feud over the TV title once Steamboat left for the WWF. On March 16th of 85, Rhodes defeated Blanchard to win the NWA television title, ending Blanchard's 350-day ending Blanchard's 353-day reign. 
The title would soon be renamed the NWA World Television Championship, and the two continued to feud throughout the first half of 85, with Blanchard regaining the title and losing it back to Rhodes in early July. At the Great American Bash, inside a steel cage. Rhodes also won the services of Baby Doll for 30 days. Baby Doll was the infamous manager of Tully Blanchard. In late 85, Blanchard fired Baby Doll as his manager, slapping her during an interview segment and igniting a feud with Dusty Rhodes, who came to her aid. After replacing Baby Doll with James J. Dillon, this led to the next chapter in Tully's career. After Blanchard's feud with Rhodes ended, he soon found himself immersed in another high-profile feud over the NWA United States title held by Magnum T.A., Much like his feud with Dusty, Blanchard's rivalry with Magnum escalated into a series of bloody and brutal matches, and became one of the top feuds in the NWA. On July 21st of 1985, Blanchard defeated Magnum for the U.S. Championship by punching him with a foreign object that was given to him by Baby Doll, who came to ringside dressed as a security guard. This feud culminated at Starcade 85 during a brutal and extremely bloody I Quit match the infamous I Quit match inside of a steel cage for the championship. You'll catch us on WWE DVDs to this day. The match ended with Magnum driving a piece of broken wood or a broken wooden chair into Blanchard's forehead, which was already deeply cut and bleeding profusely, forcing him to submit one of the greatest moments in wrestling history. One of the most iconic images in wrestling history. And of course, throughout the latter half of 85, Blanchard and a number of high-profile wrestlers in the company often competed together, usually in variations of tag teams, when needed for storyline purposes. Then, in early 1986, the foursome became a solidified group and called themselves the Four Horsemen, as Tully wound up associating himself with Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, and the nature boy, Ric Flair. They quickly established dominance. What can you say about the Horsemen? Tully played such an integral role in the Horsemen. He was the technician of the group. Arn was the enforcer. Ole was the brawn. Flair was the champion. And Tully brought the technique and prestige to the Horsemen. The Horsemen continued over and over to feud with top stars. Dusty Rhodes, Magnum T.A., Nikita Koloff, Wahoo McDaniel, The Rock and Roll Express, The Rock and Roll Express, The Road Warriors, many others. Then, after only being forced out of the horsemen and replaced by Lex Luger, Tully began teaming with Arn Anderson to put together one of the greatest tag teams of all time. But after clashing with Jim Crockett and Booker Dusty Rhodes about their pay, Blanchard and Anderson, double A, left the NWA for World Wrestling. They left the NWA for the World Wrestling Federation. On September 10th of 1988, losing in an 11th hour title change to the Midnight Express, which was comprised of Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane after a brief feud. 
This led to Tully and Arn being known as the Brain Busters, managed by Bobby the Brain Heenan in the WWF. Here is where I wish we saw more of Tully Blanchard in the New York territory, quote-unquote, of the World Wrestling Federation. They had a very short, you could say short stint in the WWF in relation to other teams and other stars that made their way through the Federation. They won the Tag Team Championship, though, and had feuds with the Rockers, with the Hart Foundation, that were epic for the, for the at the time, especially, remember, at SummerSlam. Blanchard and Anderson were planning a return to the NWA, though, after their brief run in the World Wrestling Federation. And as a result, the WWF pushed a breakup angle between Heenan and the Brainbusters in November of 89, in a special edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. Around that time, Blanchard failed a drug test, testing positive for recreational drugs, let's say, causing a premature departure from the WWF. Bobby Heenan himself replaced Blanchard as part of the Heenan family team at the Survivor Series a month later. Blanchard and Anderson were supposed to return to the NWA to reform the Four Horsemen with Ric Flair and Ole. However, when the NWA learned of Blanchard's infraction, they declined to offer him a contract. A few months later, he would regain and again regain the trust of the NWA and negotiate with them to rejoin the Horsemen in early 1990 but ultimately declined what he considered to be a very low offer. Blanchard would go on to make a few appearances in the AWA in the spring of 1990 and headline independent cards throughout the country, but would soon retire from full-time wrestling to become a preacher. In 2006, he had a very brief run as a backstage agent for the WWE, which there was an issue with JBL, we won't get into specifics, but... It led to his quick departure as producer slash, slash agent, producer slash agent for the WWE. No one can deny the impact Tully Blanchard made in professional wrestling. The looks, the way he was able to conduct himself behind the microphone, the classiness. He brought one key element to the horseman that no one can deny that was essential to the success of the group. Not to mention his ability as a tag team competitor. No one can deny that Tully Blanchard was one of the greatest tag team competitors of all time. Your reaction is for only one man, the heavyweight champion of the world, nature boy Ric Flair.
Now, Rodney Garvin doesn't have a belt. You know what? In this sport, if you don't have a belt, you're like a man without a country. That's right. So, Rodney Garvin, ha, 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 I love it. Big Dust, you got no belt. You got no life. You got nothing to brag about, nothing to stand on. And when I get to Cincinnati, Dusty Rhodes, we're going to finish it off. Because you not only will be without a belt, you'll be without a leg. And baby doll, if you stick your nose in my business, I'm going to break your leg too. Ronnie Garvin, hands of stone. Woo! Such a bad apple. Let me tell you something, Garvin. Atlanta, Georgia, my kind of town. And after I beat you up in Atlanta, me and my good buddy, Tim Ecclestone, I'm going to be woo, at Timothy John. And I'm going to rock my rear end right off. Because I'm going to have JD on my left and Mary on my right. But I'm not going to tell any woman here who I'm going to be with till around midnight. The Road Warriors, let me tell you something, Hawk. When I get through with you, Paul Everett's going to have a real job. And that's carrying the respirator so you can go. I just got through with the world champion. Now, Ricky Martin and all you little girls in your training underwear. Ricky Martin, Robert Gibson. If those girls that follow you around ever want to find out what a real man's all about, you have to look up Rick Flair, Kelly Blanchard, Jim Cornette, or the infamous, woo, James J. Dillon. Whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, I just happen to be custom made. Tony, you pick one of these up for about 1100 bucks. Woo, Rick Flair, Rocky Howard. The world champion. Hey, come here, smart guy. You got nothing to say, huh? Congratulate Tully Blanchard. Go for it, guy. Woo! Let's go to Woo! Let's go to the ring. What can you say about the nature boy Ric Flair? This I'll keep rather brief compared to the other stars that were inducted into the Hall of Fame because we're gonna start a brand new series in the coming months called Styling and Profiling. The history of the nature boy Ric Flair. That's what we that's where we will go more in depth, year by year era by era in the history of Nature Boy Ric Flair. But in summary, who can deny the impact Ric Flair made on this industry, especially in the Four Horsemen? In the Horsemen Files, you will see on a yearly basis the impact Flair made in this industry by being the head of this illustrious group. Ric Flair dominated as a singles competitor and excelled even further a part of one of the greatest stables of all time. He is what you want in a leader. He's the definition of a head leader of a stable or fraction. We talked about it in the greatest stables of all time. Ric Flair oozed prestige, oozed class. Being a top star before the Horsemen, but then in 86 when the Horsemen formed, Ric Flair was dominant as a leader and as a competitor from the different phases of the Horsemen. But to this incarnation that was inducted in the 2012 WWE Hall of Fame, Ric Flair basically 
knighted Barry Windham and gave or vouched for him, gave him the in to become a horseman because he believed in Windham. That's the stroke that Ric Flair had in this industry. We'll go into more detail from a career perspective of Ric Flair, but in general, Ric Flair definitely deserving of a two-time induction in the WWE Hall of Fame this year a part of the Four Horsemen. There would be no Four Horsemen if it wasn't for Nature Boy Ric Flair. First of all, I guess what needs to be said by me is congratulations. You are the world television champion. You won the tournament. You're also one half of the national tag team champions. However, you do realize, though, that you have 30 days to defend that national tag team title belt. I know you want to talk about this first, but keep that in mind. First things first, for once in your life, I'm glad you finally called a spade a spade and admitted that I am, and I know it's making you sick, David Crockett, the fact that I am the world television champion. I am half of the national tag team champions. There is some speculation running around, however, that an injury to Ole Anderson at the hands of Dusty Rhodes, that he won't be back in time to defend these tag titles. The information that we've received that well, he may never return to wrestling. Family, who you think's got the proper information? I talk to him on the phone every day. How long you known Ole Anderson? He will be back for the 30-day period. We'll defend these titles and we'll hang on to them all we want to. Okay. Now then, point number two. Today starts the mark of a new era. There's going to be a TV champion getting that ring every show, every week, and defend that title. The first title defense is today, and I'm going to show you what a television champion is. I'm not going to be like Dusty Rhodes and sit back here in the wings and come out here and tell people what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it, and that's all starts today, Tony Giovanni. It has been your pleasure, and just remember one thing. Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, Ole, you're at home watching. We are the four horsemen, period, and what it boils down to, you're either a world champion or you're not. That's that. It's been your pleasure. Arn Anderson, he is now the NWA World Television Double A, Arn Anderson. It seems to be a theme of tonight's inductees. What can you say about the enforcer? Double A has lived one of the most underrated wrestling careers in sports entertainment history. Always shadowed by one star or another, Arn always, still always showed himself as one of the greatest, again and again, one of the greats to ever step foot inside the squared circle, helping form one of the greatest stables ever created. He began wrestling in 1982 under his real name, Marty Lund. He began his career, as most do, as a jobber wrestling and losing to various opponents. He teamed some with Matt Bond and others, but didn't catch on then. After a brief run with the Southeastern Tag Team Championships, Arn moved on, heading to Georgia, which was slowly merging with Mid-Atlantic, to form WCW, where his quote-unquote uncle, Ole Anderson, wrestled. The two are not blood relatives. Alright, let's let's make that known now, kayfabe fans. After a brief family feud, the two teamed together as the new Minnesota Wrecking Crew. Arn joined Ole in attacking Ole's tag team partner, Thunderbolt Patterson. Ole then gave Arn the tag team belt that Thunderbolt had been wearing. 
Arn also started in on the slowly forming WCW, defeating Wahoo McDaniel at the beginning of 86 to become the NWA World Television Champion, winning the tournament after the Andersons put Dusty Rhodes out of commission, earning them the name Bone Busters. Anderson would hold the belt for nine months before losing it back to Rhodes. It was the beginning of the Four Horsemen. In May of 06, Ole and Arn Anderson joined forces with Tully Blanchard, Ric Flair, and their manager, J.J. Dillon. And Arn Anderson was responsible for coining the name the Four Horsemen. And as we mentioned earlier, as Ole was booted out of the Horsemen, Lex Luger came in to fill his void, and then Arn teamed with Tully Blanchard, where they captured the NWA World Tag Team titles from the Rock and Roll Express, and they held them for six months before losing them to Luger and Barry Windham. Arn Anderson and Barry Windham, the horsemen, in their endeavor to win the World Tag Team Championship from Doom, have reverted back to something they call basic training. We have an interesting videotape of that particular basic training. A lot of people out there may think BWS is a real primitive way of training. But maybe we got too civilized toward the, ends of, toward the end of the 80s. Maybe we got too used to the cushy life. That silver spoon got so big, we had to spit it out. Well, we may have spit out the silver spoon, my friend. There's one thing that you can't get around. The most pure emotion is pain and followed by fear. Tell them, big man. You know, the 90s have been referred to as the reckoning with truth. In the 80s, everything was clouded. Nobody ever told the truth. In the 90s, the way to go is flat out. Tell no lies. That's the way we're going to do it. When you hear something from our lips, truth it may be and as much as it may hurt, you can count on it being exactly the way that it is. Get in touch with your emotions. Find out what your worst phobia is. I want everybody affiliated with WCW to prepare themselves for Armageddon. Nineteen ninety-one, our resurgence has begun, and don't think you're safe. The horsemen don't rest. When we win a championship, we go full bore to keep a championship. Like so many of our opponents, this is the way they look and feel the morning after a match with us. This may be a symbolic way of showing you the primitive way we're going to deal with things. America's greatest fear is gang violence. Where the horsemen are concerned, there's not going to be any drive-by shootings. We're going to keep it legal, but we're going to keep it as violent as the law allows. No one's safe. Jump on the horseman. You're going to the hospital in the 90s.
Hail the horseman. Hey, Dougal, will you look at this dump? Ha! <laughs> Say to him's a palace, pal. You can better bet that. <laughs> but it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> you gotta be asking yourself, how do we walk around through slum tenements? No fear of gangs? You guys scared to walk around this area? <laughs> and that certainly ain't Don Perry on, pal. Let me tell you something, we're the horsemen. We come and go as we please, yeah. America's greatest fear is gang violence. Well, there was a bunch of punks with scarfs on their head back here. They all piled in a van and hit the bricks. See, America, World Championship Wrestling in particular, finally getting the idea. Won't be any drive-by shootings. Nothing illegal. Won't be some immoral things going on, though. You see, we're going to take it as far as the law allows, tell them, B.W. You know, about five minutes ago, this place was packed with thugs. <laughs> and every door is bolted. And still clipping the padlocks on the doors. This one right here is afraid to come out, afraid to even look out the window. But I'll tell you what, it's this way in every town we go. Every street we walk, every bar, pub, or club we walk in, everybody seems to disappear. And it's happening that way in World Championship Wrestling. Sting, Luger, the Steiners, Doom, in their own element, are nowhere to be found. We came down here looking for Teddy Long. I think he owns this joint, but it got us nowhere. Let me tell you something. Barry Wyndham got a funny new haircut, a lot of them say it. <laughs> Ric Flair got a funny haircut. Ric Flair don't wear three-piece suits anymore. What's the matter with you guys? Well, there ain't nothing the matter with us. What's gonna be the matter is with each and every day that passes, casualties begin to pile up. You take this violent setting, you look at these people in the window, scared to death to come outside. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be. The strong survive, and their strength in numbers. We're talking about numbers, we're talking about four. A few months later, after bouncing titles back and forth, the two were defeated by the Midnight Express and Anderson and Blanchard headed to the World Wrestling Federation. As the Brain Busters, like we discussed with Tully, Anderson and Blanchard were managed by Bobby the Brain Heenan and took Storm. It was great to see Anderson in WWF territory for the very first time. But I don't think him and Tully were appreciated as much as they should have been for their great in-ring work. Like I mentioned earlier, once again, them capturing the WWF World Tag Team titles. The Brain Busters were fully in charge as one of the greatest tag teams in wrestling at that time, in that era. Of course, as the story mentioned earlier, Arn went back to WCW and returned with a vengeance coming out with his Uncle Oli to aid Ric Flair against Gary Hart in his stable. Soon after, with a brief reuniting horseman group, Ric Flair left for the WWF. Once Arn Anderson came back, Flair left. And this broke the four horsemen up once again. This left Anderson without a home. AA did not have a place in WCW. After a brief time on his own, 
He soon signed on with the Dangerous Alliance, another great faction that Anderson was a part of. It was a stable under the power of Pauly Dangerously. Anderson and Zabisco teamed up to win the WCW Tag Titles, defeating Rick Steiner and Bill Kazmier. Then, after losing the titles and after some other situations that occurred, the Dangerous Alliance crumbled, once again leaving Arn stableless. Anderson then started a dark time in his wrestling career. He followed Bobby Eaton to Smoky Mountain Wrestling for a brief period, but Anderson soon returned back to WCW, trying to find his focus, find his way back in the professional wrestling industry. Then Ric Flair returned back to WCW. Arn saw some light at the end of the tunnel, maybe some refocus to Anderson's career. The Four Horsemen reformed with Ole, Arn, Rick, and Paul Roma taking the fourth spot. Anderson and Roma took the tag team titles in August of 93, but only held them for a short time, losing them to the Nasty Boys. Also, just as the title run was brief, so was Paul Roma's spot in the Horsemen, as he was gone shortly from the group. In October of 1993, Anderson began a new feud with Sid Vicious. However, this feud was not scripted. This was from a real-life situation. Sid apparently visited Anderson one night in his hotel room where a fight broke out. Both wrestlers were taken to the hospital with scissor stab wounds. This was the very first public notice or public display of Anderson getting into a fight backstage with other competitors. No one can deny, though, on Anderson's effect in professional wrestling. But soon after the 93-94 revival of the Four Horsemen, it led to the end of the line for Arn Anderson. Between the years of 94-97, we saw a dramatic change in Arn Anderson's career. He remained a regular on-screen performer in WCW over the next few years after the revival of the Horsemen. He joined Colonel Robert Parker's stud stable in 94, once the horseman disbanded for a brief period of time. The stud stable feuded heavily with Dusty and Dustin Rhodes until late 94 when Terry left. Then Anderson played the first masked man to attack Hulk Hogan at Clash of the Champions. This is when the Hulkamania era began in WCW. Anderson then went to rejoin Ric Flair. Anderson's last championship run began on January 8th of 1995 after winning the WCW World Television Championship. Anderson helped restore the prestige of the title, which he held for just over six months before dropping it to the Renegade. He briefly feuded with longtime partner, best friend Ric Flair, and was assisted by Brian Pillman in his efforts. But there was a swerve for all fans, one of the greatest swerves in WCW history, to reunify the horseman with Flair, Anderson, Pillman, and a partner to be named later, which would end up being Chris Benoit. By the end of 96, Anderson rarely competed in the ring, as years of wear and tear on his body finally started to catch up with him. And on August 25th of 1997, on an edition of WCW Monday Nitro, Anderson formally announced his retirement from the ring. Other members of the Horsemen were alongside with him at the time. New member Steve McMichael, Chris Benoit, 
Ric Flair in tears to see Arn Anderson retire from professional wrestling. And as his last official act as the enforcer of the Four Horsemen, he offered his spot in the Horsemen to Kurt Henning. As he was really forced to retire due to his extensive neck and upper back injuries. He would work one or two tag matches officially from that point, including teaming with David Flair on an episode of WCW Thunder, but his really physical involvement was extremely limited in both of those matches. On September 14th of the 1998 edition of Nitro, alongside Steve McMichael, Dean Malenko, and Chris Benoit, Anderson ceremoniously reintroduced Ric Flair to WCW after his 12-month hiatus. In doing so, they reformed the Horsemen, who then feuded with WCW President Eric Bischoff. Anderson remained Flair's right-hand man during this time of even when Flair became quote-unquote president of WCW as he attempted to keep Flair's delusional hunger for power at bay. Then in 2000, Anderson was a member of the short-lived Old Age Outlaws, led by Terry Funk, a group of veteran wrestlers battling the revived New World Order. WCW would be purchased, of course, by the WWE, or WWF at the time in 2001, ending on Anderson's tenure. Long-lived history in the NWA slash WCW. Then post-retirement for Anderson was rather transitional, as he was his contract was purchased by the WWE and made a smooth transition into the producer slash agent role in World Wrestling Entertainment. He had a brief appearance in the invasion angle, the storyline that took place when WCW finally came in to infiltrate the WWE. He had a great spot or great moment in WrestleMania at WrestleMania 18 when Flair took on The Undertaker. Uh, I was there, and, and the that one spot was garnered such a loud reaction, and that was competing with Rock and Hogan. The spine buster on The Undertaker was such a great mania moment for R. Anderson, which eventually led to Flair losing to The Undertaker later in the evening. But Anderson made, of course, the special appearance at the October 2006 Raw Family Reunion special, in which he was in Ric Flair's corner for his match against one of the Spirit Squad members. Some brief appearances for Anderson. Of course, any time Ric Flair was... uh, Who could forget the special career-ending ceremony for Ric Flair the night after WrestleMania 24 on Raw, when the Four Horsemen reunited together with Anderson coming out with Wyndham, J.J. Dillon, and Tully Blanchard to commemorate and celebrate Ric Flair's career, and of course, leading to his Hall of Fame induction in 2012. He's not flashy. He doesn't wear expensive robes or fancy trunks. He hung in the shadows most of his career, but he was the best enforcer this sport has ever known. Double A, Arn Anderson. As you say something, and then you back it up with action. He emerged as part of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew and was one of the original members of the Four Horsemen. Along with cousin Ole Anderson, Mick Flair, and Tully Blanchard, they ruled the wrestling scene. How are you 
to stay on top. They did what they needed to dominate the sport. Among the transformation of members over the 15-year reign, Arn and Flair were the foundation. One of the greatest wrestling technicians ever. He used the ring as a weapon. The enforcer was never afraid to take a shortcut. Climbing into the ring brought him home, and the four horsemen were his family members. Besides being the enforcer for many of Ric Flair's successes, Arn racked up many victories in tag competition. The best in the world, best tag team, period. Double A held the NWA and WCW World Tag Titles with four different partners. In singles competition, he owned the WCW World's TV title, punishing his opponents match after match, then finishing them off with the devastating spine buster. Arn Anderson was the TV champion longer than anyone in wrestling history. Never at a loss for words, the enforcer told us like it was, then he delivered. We will miss Arn's confident march to the ring, the look of determination on his face, and above all, his sheer desire to win. This program is dedicated to the enforcer, double A, Arn Anderson, Four Horsemen. No one can deny the role that Arn Anderson played in professional wrestling, past, present, and future. He leaves behind such a great legacy of matches, charisma, the underrated ability behind the microphone that he had, his ability to team with basically any partner and become a tag team champion. Arn Anderson was the backbone of the Four Horsemen. Most people say Ric Flair was the horseman, but I truly feel there would be no Four Horsemen without Double A, Arn Anderson. And to this very day, he trains and molds the minds of future WWE and professional wrestling superstars. Thank you, Arn Anderson, for all you've done in the world of professional wrestling. Last, but certainly not least, the rated R superstar. Edge. Edge is Adam Copeland, a kid who grew up watching WWE, loving WWE, waiting for it to come to Toronto. One day, hoping to live and realize his dream. I think Edge, growing up a fan of the WWE, was the recipe for success. Edge was like in the fifth row of like one of the WrestleManias in Toronto. He was a guy that dedicated his life to entertaining fans and giving them quality entertainment every time he came out. I loved watching him with the Brood, and then before the Miz was awesome. I've been reeking of awesomeness for 12 years. He's cutting edge, no pun intended, but when he spears another superstar, he pulls the hair back, you're captivated by everything that Edge does. I know he has an evil side to himself, and Edge, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think Edge overall raised the bar for all the guys and gals in the back. You think you know me? Million miles away. 
legacy is that he embraced each and every moment. We all gonna remember him as an incredible performer. I can't honestly say that if it wasn't for people taking the chance on him that those same people would be taking the chance with me. So, uh, That's one of the biggest reasons I appreciate you, Edge. Edge not only has it, he's brilliant. He's the Einstein of our business. Born on October 30th, 1973, in Ontario, Canada. He made his pro wrestling debut in 1993. While on the indie scene wrestling as Sexton Hardcastle, he teamed with Christian Cage. Edge debuted in the WWE in 1998 as a loner that would enter the ring through the crowd. Edge's career began at such an early age it was mentioned during the actual Hall of Fame ceremony of Edge and Christian pretending to wrestle at school with one another. Best friends, bonded by wrestling, became so successful in the industry they love so much. I remember watching Edge in a dark match. Actually, I believe it was at the Meadowlands Arena. And Edge was trying to do this goofy dance. I remember just thinking, this guy's good, but he's looking, he needs this right gimmick. He needs the right gimmick. He's looking for the right image that would reflect his personality. He was just missing something, but I knew he had talent. It was just trying to find where the talent was going to actually come from, from his character. 
the athleticism, the potential was there. Just finding the, finding the right character for Adam Copeland is what was needed. But I knew from even from his very first dark match that we saw a future star. I didn't think he was going to be as big as he actually was. I'll admit it. This is one of the ones. This, these are one of the, one of the very few superstars that I didn't quote unquote call as a big main event player. But I knew he had major superstar potential. Of course, he debuted as a loner, looking for his niche in the WWE. Of course, he had the gimmick as the Lone Edge. You think you know me? The very mysterious theme. Mysterious character, you didn't know who he was. This guy in a long trench coat with glasses. And then his character started to form when he joined the Brood. While feuding with Gangrel, his quote-unquote brother, Christian, debuted at the side of Gangrel. Edge eventually joined the Brood, which was led by Gangrel himself. The Brood then became part of the Ministry of Darkness, which later merged into the Corporate Ministry. Edge and Christian left the Brood, and Gangrel in 1999 and went on to become the most successful team in WWE history. Yeah, I raked in $55. See, the key is to get the kids because they're really stupid. Hey, good call. Hey, yeah, Andrew Christian, can I ask you guys a question? Shoot. Tag team titles are on the line tonight against the Acolytes and the Hardy Boys. Stiff competition. Why would you put your titles on the line in a match like that? Well, why would you dye your hair like a 14-year-old girl? What do you mean, why? We're the fightingest champions of all time. That's what we do. And besides, this isn't about the Acolytes or the Hardy Boys. It's about the fans. And for the citizens of Cleveland who can afford flash photography, we have a very special surprise in store for them. tonight for the benefit of those with flash photography oh. tonight we will unveil a very special new pose for five seconds only new pose we call this a Cleveland Indians relief pitcher Cleveland Indians relief pitcher these guys are so full of themselves these days get your camera it's, out it's embarrassing for them As partners, they won the World Tag Team titles on seven different occasions. Their three-way feud, their triple threat matches with the Hardy Boys and Dudleys was a classic. Classic in tag team triple threat history. You could say it was the epitome of the tag team division. As were the TLC matches they had against those teams were epic. By 2001, the two men became goofballs that would allow fans five seconds of flash photography. 
among other zany antics. In 2001, Edge won the King of the Ring tournament, and that set in motion the undoing of this team. Where do you think they got those jerseys? Greetings to all of our fans in Oakland! But they got those jerseys from a couple of Raiders that are in the can. <laughs> As you all know, it's playoff time. And just like Edge and Christian, the five-time tag team champions are the bad boys of the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> bad boys! The Raiders are so totally the bad boys of the NFL. Of course, that's not the exit now. <laughs> and this Sunday, over at the Coliseum, Oh, please. The Baltimore Ravens to the Raiders. They're going to get totally curb stomped by the Baltimore Ravens. <laughs> curb stomped. Curb stomped. That's radical. Uh-oh. Look at those Raiders. So, for the benefit of those with flash photography, we call this pose on any given Sunday. Hey, it's a five-second pose. You get your camera ready, Michael. Uh-oh, look at this. Yeah, this should be a look classic. Look at the Raiders. Ah! Ravens and Raiders meet Sunday in the AFC Championship game. Edge and Christian not endearing. Of course, that's when Edge started carrying around the trophy or had Christian hold the trophy or Christian kind of wanted to hold this trophy as he was the winner of the King of the Ring and the animosity built, which would eventually led to the split of the brothers, E and C. And this led to the SmackDown superstar, Edge. In the original draft, Edge was taken number six by SmackDown while there... He did feud with Kurt Angle and won the WWE Tag Team titles with both Hulk Hogan and Rey Mysterio. In 2003, Edge needed neck surgery and was off for a full year. Edge lived his dream teaming with Hulk Hogan, but the wear and tear of those TLC matches took its toll on the future Rated R Superstar. Upon his return, a transition was made from SmackDown to Raw as he became a Raw Superstar. In March of 2004, he was drafted over to Raw, and then in June he became World Tag Team Champion with the World Heavyweight Champion Chris Benoit. In July, he became the Intercontinental Champion by beating Randy Orton. He feuded with Evolution and Chris Jericho. In September, he suffered a groin injury and missed a month of action. When he returned, he asked the fans to vote for him to fight Triple H in the main event of Taboo Tuesday. This led to world title or nothing. By fan vote, he and Benoit were to wrestle for the tag team titles at Taboo Tuesday. He walked out on his partner and would go on to win the belts. So, Edge won the titles while walking out and Benoit still became tag team champions. The Edge vs. Benoit feud culminated in a three-way match with Triple H for the world title, which resulted in the title being declared vacant. Around this time, Edge's autobiography was released. On the Edge, Adam Copeland. This is where Adam Copeland Edge remarked that he heard from Soul Man Rocky Johnson claiming that he'll soon see Edge main event of WrestleMania. At the time, I found it hard to believe. Could Edge really main event of WrestleMania? And this is where his character started to form. Sure, there were memorable moments in his career, 
him beating Kurt Angle, which caused Kurt Angle shaving his head bald as the receding hairline was growing on Kurt, and this gave a great out to go actually bald for the Olympic gold medalist. Edge had many moments with the TLC matches, became tag team champion, IC title holder. Edge was on the path, but he still was not at that main event level. This led to a storyline which would catapult him into rated R status. Matt Hardy and Kane. Edge started 2005 off feuding with the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels. At WrestleMania 21, he won the Money in the Bank ladder match, which entitled him to wrestle for any championship whenever he wanted within a year. This is when Money in the Bank was fairly new. A few months later, reality and wrestling collided. The storyline of wrestling collided with reality of the of actual life. As he started going out with Matt Hardy's girlfriend, Lita, behind the scenes. This led to a feud between the men and a feud with Kane, who was quote-unquote married to Lita at the time. This caused, you could say, smarks, smart marks, online, the online wrestling community hating Edge and loving Matt Hardy because of what he did. Love-scorned teens can relate to Matt Hardy, who was very public online and over the internet before Twitter, before the Twitter days. Imagine if Twitter was around for Matt Hardy during that period, writing blogs and messages to fans about his tales of woe and his heartbreak from Lita and what Edge did. So in turn, the great babyface Edge was turning into a true heel. Yes, I found it hard to see Edge as a true babyface making it as a main event player. Granted, when I was there live during live events in the crowd, the crowd would go crazy for Edge. I remember one time on SmackDown, I think it was around 04, 05, the crowd was going crazy for Edge. Uh, around the time when Hogan was battling The Rock Part 2, it was a SmackDown episode when Edge came out and the crowd was going nuts. And I said, wow, this, this guy has it. But something was just missing to connect on a main event level. And this true heel character that he was forming was the missing spot that Edge found that truly sent him, quote-unquote, pun intended, over the edge. Edge is a 12-time tag team champion, a five-time intercontinental champion, and a nine-time world champion. Edge is cashing the money in the bank. Edge has shocked the world. The ultimate opportunist has done it again. Spear. Spear. And it's all over. A spear from their rated R superstar. Spear. 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 I'm the main event. Edge has changed the landscape like no one in history. The rated R superstar. This led to Edge cashing in the money in the bank twice. At New Year's Revolution of 2006, he cashed in his title shot after John Cena survived an Elimination Chamber match. He easily beat the worn-out champ to win his first World Heavyweight Championship. 
He lost the belt a few weeks later at the Royal Rumble, but he set the tone as him being a main event world championship player. A few minutes later, he won the title from Rob Van Dam, but lost it back to John Cena. Then in May of 2007, he won the Money in the Bank title shot from Mr. Kennedy, basically took it from him, and used it to easily beat The Undertaker the following night after The Undertaker fought in a steel cage match against Batista and was beaten up after the match by Mark Henry. So right then, Edge was a two-time World Heavyweight Champion. Love leads to more championship gold and problems for Edge. Edge started a relationship with SmackDown GM Vicky Guerrero, or assistant GM, or consultant Vicky Guerrero, that allowed him to gain an unfair advantage to continue winning championship gold. In the summer of 2008, the two got married. The marriage didn't last long, as Edge would eventually find himself on the other side of Vicky Guerrero's wrath. The Matt Hardy lead a feud was tremendous. The reason why I jumped to this part of his career because Edge's career fits so well with the women that accompanied him to ringside. When he won his second championship, Edge feuded and battled with John Cena over and over again where he created his own rated R superstar title. The Rated R WWE Championship actually spun with his R logo. Edge was finding his niche, and Lita helped him. The backstage affair led to storyline success, as Lita officially turned heel, being, quote-unquote, lovers with Edge. The two worked so well with each other, after winning matches, then making out um, at the top of the ramp, Lita helping out Edge retain championships, getting victories, frustrating fans, and of course Lita looking so hot, of course, in her outfits, added a new element to her character. Edge and Lita worked so well together and really catapulted Edge as a main event player. And this led to his next love interest, you could say, Another component of Edge's character where he would do anything, the opportunistic Edge would do anything to gain an Edge over his competitors. All these puns, fans, where he decided to team up with Vic Guerrero to gain the power to retain his championship. He would do anything to retain his championship. That was the character that he needed to become a true player in this industry. And of course, his Achilles heel injury, which really affected him. That Achilles injury is so hard to come back from, which he hurt at a a house show. And then, who could forget him teaming up with Randy Orton as rated RKO with the Tag Team Championship. Edge has done so much in this industry. And it's hard to look back and say, what was the greatest moment in his career? Because he had so many great moments. It could be when he returned from his injury and won the and won the Royal Rumble the following year from being out. Or in 2011, when he beat Alberto Del Rio at WrestleMania 27 to retain the World Heavyweight Championship, which turned out to be his final wrestling match before he was forced reti- to retire due to medical issues stemming from the neck surgery he had a few years earlier. What a way to go out, retaining the World Heavyweight Championship 
at WrestleMania. Edge has done it all in this industry. 31 total championships. 11 World Heavyweight Championships combined with the WWE title. 14 Tag Team Championships. 5 Intercontinental Championships. And of course, a United States Championship run. Edge has done it all. Adam Copeland, from being a fan to becoming a superstar, every boy's dream he was able to accomplish. From being in the audience at WrestleMania 6 to watch Hogan vs. Warrior, to main eventing WrestleMania 24 against The Undertaker, to winning and retaining the World Heavyweight Championship at his last match at WrestleMania 27, a boyhood dream was completed through the eyes of Adam Copeland. And this past April, or end of March, I should say, we saw Edge become another inductee into the 2012 WWE Hall of Fame. He is so deserving. When you look at instant Hall of, Hall of Famers, sure, you think of Shawn Michaels the previous year being inducted, but when you look at his resume, it's hard to argue that Edge had a career worthy of an instant Hall of Famer. And he will surely be missed inside the squared circle, and we can kind of live through Christian and extend the career of Edge further by watching Christian inside the squared circle, which he took on many of his signature moves and monikers, the spear, which he made so popular, uh, a different style of spear than a Goldberg, which Edge made so popular, even by chanting the word spear, even by chanting the word spear during his babyface return after winning the Royal Rumble, his feuds with Chris Jericho, who could forget about that, the Shawn Michaels battles, Edge has done it all, and we hope to live through Christian and extend the career of the Rated R Superstar Edge. Thank you for all you've done for us fans, a part of the universe. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Wrestling fans, it's time to thank our sponsors of the Beyond the Bell podcast. The SNS Radio Network provides daily audio programming that covers professional wrestling and sports entertainment. If you're not listening, you're not trying. Squared Circle Media is proud to make episodes of Beyond the Bell and other pro wrestling audio content available to wrestling fans around the world. You can find all content from Squared Circle Media at www.squaredcirclemedia.net. Ringannouncing.com is the official website of ring announcer Sean Beckerman. This is where you will find video, audio, and the latest schedule for the future of ring announcing. All videos are streamed at the YouTube channel, also labeled Ring Announcing. Stitcher works to provide an innovative platform for listening to audio content on the go. You can download the Stitcher app on all smartphones via the Android Market and the iTunes App Store. Stitcher, now streaming innovative audio. If you are interested in advertising on Beyond the Bell, email us at btbwrestling at gmail.com and in the title type, Advertising. Join the Beyond the Bell revolution. It's go time! Wrestling enthusiasts, thank you so much for joining me once again for another edition of the show that takes you back in time to rewind and relive all things nostalgia. 
in the world of professional wrestling. Tonight we look back at the inductees of the 2012 WWE Hall of Fame. Who cannot deny their impact that they made in the world of sports entertainment? The definition of Hall of Famers is found in this very class. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Sean Beckerman, like me and Beyond the Bell on Facebook, as well as check out the brand new ringannouncing.com, as now all Beyond the Bell episodes are archived at ringannouncing.com as we make the smooth transition from Podbean to ringannouncing.com and expect the iTunes RSS feed to switch over at snsradionetwork.com. So don't forget the two main sites, ringannouncing.com and snsradionetwork.com for all archive Beyond the Bell episodes. Now we're entering a new era for Beyond the Bell fans. I'm excited for future programming. In the coming months, we'll wrap up our Hulkamania Chronicles series, as well as the Horseman Files will continue on with 1986. We'll also look back at the history of WCW, WCW 101, our specialty series that's coming out, as we'll look back at the greatest families in wrestling, as well as the great commentators, play-by-play, and color in sports entertainment. I hope you've enjoyed our WWE Hall of Fame special as this is the inaugural edition. Another series that's going to kick off is our Hall of Fame series as we look back at the Hall of Fames of the past. Year by year as we look back at the inductees for their respective years and the impact they made in professional wrestling. Also, remember to stream Beyond the Bell via the Stitcher app which you can download on all smartphone app stores. I'm Sean Beckerman signing off. And I'll see you next week as we'll rewind and relive all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. In the meantime, fans, I'll see you at the matches.
Would you yell it from the roof?